Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So I'm writing a book about kindness right now, which I'm going to do in my way with a lot of expletives and um, embarrassing personal stories. And uh, our guest this week fits perfectly into that because he's written a book about kindness. Uh, not a lot of swearing in his, uh, but he, he knows a lot more than I do. His name is Zigger Control Rinpoche. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He'll pronounce it correctly for us. Rinpoche just means he's uh, a respected and high-level teacher in the Tibetan tradition. He's also a reincarnate. Uh, he's a re- designated a uh, as a third reincarnation of a of a previous Rinpoche, a great Lama from generations past. Uh, and we get into an interesting conversation about my skepticism about the whole reincarnation thing. But primarily we talk about why, and this is what I'm going to talk about in my book, why it is in your interest to not be a jerk um, and, and what kind of meditation we can do to uh, boost our capacity to not be a jerk. All right. So Zigger's coming up. Uh, but first, uh, I want to say something, and then uh, I want to take your calls, and then and then we'll get to the guest. Um, I want to say thank you. A couple of weeks ago, we, we mentioned that we we're doing a survey of podcast listeners uh, to help us do a better job, and hundreds of you took time to answer the questions, hundreds and hundreds of you. And I am really moved by that fact and extremely grateful and I just want you all to know that we are combing through the results. It's some of it's quite humbling, <laughs> humbling in that there, you know, there were, there were some real criticisms in there, but they were all of it is incredibly useful. We are going to this is going to be our Bible as we continue to uh, tweak and and hopefully grow this show. So I just want to say a really sincere thank you, and a lot more to come. We're gonna we're gonna be working on this show for a long time and 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 the the results we got from that survey are going to be extremely helpful. So one of the things we heard in the survey is that people are pretty tired of of my um caveat that I issue every week before we uh, before I take the phone calls, uh the vo- the voicemails. Uh so I won't issue it this week. I may do it in the future. Let's just get right to call number 1. Hi Dan. Uh, my name is Kadeem, a PhD student uh, studying uh, applied economics at Harvard, and um, got really into meditation through you, so that's been uh, awesome. I was curious if you could talk about the internal experience that you have while meditating, and be more specific. Um, in probably the last few months, I'm meditating for maybe six months. Last few, in the last few months, I've um, developed this uh, tendency to have sort of euphoric experiences and feeling like um, the inside of my mind gets really like light and feeling it physically, um, almost as if I'm kind of high or something like that um, when I meditate. And the first time having it kind of freaked me out, like what, what the hell's going on, but I've learned to sort of appreciate it. Um, but I'm just wondering if uh, you can have these sort of physiological uh, experiences in in your head and your face and other parts of your body while you're meditating that you feel you otherwise don't have, and if you could talk about um, what those experiences are like. Thanks. The answer is yes. It's very common. Um, 
usually in my understanding and experience among people who are, you know, at a, you know, significant dosage of meditation, but I don't think there's any reason. Uh, I, I think it can happen to people doing even low-dose meditation, no question about it. Um, it. It's very common to have all sorts of interesting experiences, um, physical sensations uh, that you've never experienced before, negative or positive, uh, psychological and emotional um, stuff along the lines with uh, you're describing, but the range is vast. Uh, this is this is what happens when you when you start looking at at, at the mind uh, and training the mind. Um, it doesn't always happen. You can't count it on it happening. And uh, I, I would suggest you, uh, you, since you're in Cambridge and you're right near the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, that you go and talk to a really genuinely experienced teacher there about what you're experiencing because um, I, I think it would be very interesting to hear from uh, from somebody like that uh, uh, b- because there's a lot to say that I'm not really qualified to say. Uh, in fact, I talked a, a moment ago about our um, survey and w- one of the things that I think we we may do as a consequence of this survey because there were some very there were many, many wise suggestions in there, but one of them was that perhaps some of these questions uh, where I'm not qualified to answer, um, we, sh- we, we will get meditation teachers um, to, to answer them I- I briefly. Uh, but, but, but since it's me here right now, just me right here right now, I, I, I will say that the one thing I've heard, you know, I've had many ex- uh, extreme, <laughs> extremely pleasant and extremely unpleasant experiences while meditating and um, the, the feedback I've generally gotten from my teachers is, you know, were you mindful? Were you noting it? Were you uh, not attached to what is inevitably an, uh, a, a passing experience as, which will arise and pass away? And to not get overly attached to these experiences or overly aversive to the negative ones um, because that's the game here, just waking up to whatever's happening right now. Um, so, yeah, what you're describing sounds like somebody who's taking meditation really seriously and, and, this, and, and these experiences uh, are the inevitable consequence. Um, but I do, I do think you should, uh, you should, you should go talk to – somebody with even more experience than I do, and I recommend CIMC right there in Cambridge since you said you were at Harvard. Uh, All right, that's a great question. Let's go to the second one. Hi, Dan. Connor from Colorado here. I'd just like to get your opinion on more secular practitioners getting involved with uh, local Buddhist communities or mindfulness clubs or Buddhist temples. Just uh, your general overall opinion for more secular, maybe not religious folk uh, that do meditate. Uh, thanks, Dan. Appreciate your work. Okay, this one I am super qualified to answer because I have done what you're describing. I'm assuming you're a secular guy and you're looking around. I'm assuming here, so that's always dangerous, but I'm assuming you're a secular guy and you're, you want to get more uh, into meditation and and, uh, it's, and the, the best options appear to be a Buddhist. And my answer is there is nothing to fear. Um, 
if you don't want to get swept up in a religion, I don't think you will be, because in my experience and personal and and in my view, uh, Buddhism is is and now I'm quoting uh, the great Stephen Batchelor here, uh, a, a writer who I recommend wholeheartedly, who has never come on this podcast, although um, we're working on it. Um, Buddhism is not something to believe in; it's something to do. It's a set of you, you know. There are plenty of things you can believe in in Buddhism, including reincarnation, which we're going to talk about on this episode. But the Buddha was very specific, which was he he said, you know, take or leave any of the claims I'm making. Test it out for yourself. Take what works for you. And so he was a guy skeptics can line up behind. And these Buddhist centers, you know, some of them you may like, some of them you may not. But I I am of the view that Buddhism is uh, and I say this as somebody who is still avowedly secular. I don't believe in anything you can't prove. Um, but Buddhism is one of the most fascinating things I have ever come across. And uh, in the last nine years have spent pretty much all of my spare time reading, studying, and practicing uh, Buddhism. Uh, And there's so much there. Uh, So, yeah, when I go into some Buddhist contexts, the the, the bowing and the chanting and the the robes, is it a little odd for me? Yeah, but is it anybody, you know, forcing me to embrace grand metaphysical theories and uh, that I don't uh, believe in? No. So, yeah, you you may experience some discomfort, but that's just another thing to be mindful of. How's it showing up for you? What kind of thoughts? How's it showing up in your body? What kind of thoughts is it creating? What kind of emotions? That's interesting to tune in and investigate. Um, so I wholeheartedly encourage you to experiment. It's okay if you don't like what you find, uh, in some places, but I bet you will in others. And, uh, yeah, leave us another voicemail in, uh, in a couple months. And, and I want to hear more about your peregrinations within the world of Buddhism, but a wholehearted thumbs up there. All right. Uh, so Zigger Control Rinpoche, again, I hope I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he has the title of Tulku, which means he's a reincarnate. Um, he's a reincarnated uh, Tibetan Lama. He's written many, many books, including "It's Up to You: The Practice of Self-Reflection on the Buddhist, Buddhist Path," "Light Coming Through," "Natural Vitality," um, "Uncommon Happiness." Uh, he's yes, heart advice. Uh, he's he's written lots of books. The Way of Tenderness, I believe, is another book, and a lot of them are are uh, about compassion and kindness. And uh, he has a way of talking about it that, again, makes it less ooey gooey and more practical and more sort of. You might not like this term, but I I like it. Sort of self interested. What's in it for you to do this? And there's a lot in it for you to do this. And so let me shut up and 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 have him explain. Here we go. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Dan, for having us here. Really appreciate it. So I was reading a little bit about your biography. Very interesting. Your first teacher was your mom? Yes, my first teacher was my mom. She was a practitioner, and she did uh, many years of retreat before she married to my father. So, you know, as I was growing up, she's always practicing. So that kind of really gave me a uh, huge inspiration and... Oh, also, she taught me a lot of uh, you know basic stuff. I'm sorry, I had to interrupt. I was just going to say I, I was under the impression that, uh, and I'm not an expert in Tibetan um, 
culture, but I thought it was reasonably that the, the, the meditation world within the Tibetan culture was reasonably patriarchal. So is it common for women to have that amount of experience? Where my mother is from, actually, um, a lot of the householders, they do receive teachings and then they, of course, so while they're working in the household, they also practice in the breaks, you know. So I think there is a tradition. But uh, in generally speaking, I think uh, it is true. There is a lot more uh, male uh, uh, practitioners than the, uh, female practitioners. But my mother was sort of uh, very unique in a sense that she really wanted to practice. If she didn't get that chance to practice, she was kind of really not uh, going to be uh, happy, so to speak. So she really asked her parents to uh, put her into retreat. So then they did, and then she did uh, 13 years of a retreat. <laughs> 13 years? Yeah. And starting at what age? I think she was around uh, 13 or 14, something like that. And uh, it was not in the mountains or anything. It's in the back of a uh, family house. And uh, they built a retreat cabin, and then the family supported uh, two of the daughters. She did her retreat with uh, her sister, younger sister. And uh, so they were in retreat, yeah, in the back of the family house for closed retreat, uh, strict retreat for 13 years. So when you say closed retreat, strict retreat, you mean they? it's not like they were getting education during that time. They were actually f- meditating all day, every yes, day. Yes, I think they were, uh, they were getting some teachings and then uh, they were just following the routine of uh, we have uh, four sessions like uh, in a day. So early morning sessions and morning sessions and afternoon sessions and evening sessions. So they were really practicing and meditating. Yes. Wow. And you say she was a householder, meaning she was not a nun. She was not she ordained. Wa- she wasn't nun. She wasn't ordained. And she wanted to be. But then I think uh, my family uh, was kind of a big family. So they wanted her to sort of first uh, do this retreat and then see. Then uh, after... Towards the end of uh, her retreat, then uh, my father came alone and then proposed her. And then her family wanted her to marry my father, so then she got married off. And was your father a householder as well? Uh, he, he was a uh, he was a teacher. He was a teacher, and he was a householder uh, teacher uh, in that region. A meditation teacher, uh, he, or he, a teacher yeah, teacher, meditation teacher, and uh, he was one of uh, the sort of. Um, we call it Rinpoche's uh, in that area, uh, who had a sort of, uh, you know, a monastery which also has monks as well as also lay practitioners mixed together. So Rinpoche is a term for advanced spiritual slash meditation teacher in the Tibetan world. Yeah, Rinpoche is a, a generally a title for reincarnate lamas, and uh, he was a, one of the reincarnate lamas uh, of that region. And so you started meditating when you were how old? I started to meditate. My mother put me into a retreat when I was around 10. Um, 10 years old? 10 years old. So separated from your family at that point? No, actually, my brother was doing a retreat. Uh, Again, a similar situation, uh, very close to my family home, in the uh, back of my family home. And uh, I was around 10, and she said, oh, this is a good time for you to really get... uh, hmm, connected with the Dharma, so you should go into retreat. So she put me into retreat. She actually uh, asked me to do just some uh, mantras, that's all. Uh, I wasn't you know, taught to meditate or anything like that, but just put into retreat. Then I came out of that retreat about three months, 
And I was fantasizing about coming out and doing a lot of different things and playing and as any child would. Uh, then when I came out, and I did all of the things that I fantasized when I was inside uh, the retreat uh, while I was chanting or doing the recitations. And then it didn't. there was some kind of a feeling of emptiness or there was some kind of feeling of uh, void of doing all of those things. So then that's the beginning of my real interest to kind of pursue the meditation. And then I got some teachings. And then I went into retreat myself. So that was maybe when I was uh, 13 or something like that. So it sounds like at the age of 10, you had one of the key insights of Buddhism, which is suffering. Yes. That the the things you thought you wanted yes. didn't do it for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that was a really a kind of a first experience of, oh, yeah, you know, all of this playing with my friends and, you know, uh, hanging out and, uh, you know, wandering around, all of those things that, you know, I kind of fantasized while I was in a retreat. When I really went to do it, there was a sense of feeling like, oh, this really didn't, this really, you know, doesn't have the, so much of the kind of uh, joy as I had when I was alone uh, in the uh, uh, room uh, doing the practice. And um, so it was just all made up in my mind. Mm. And while I was in the uh, room, there was some kind of a sense of uh, grace, you know, a sense of peace, even though I was a little bit anxious and times I was kind of getting a little bit... um, mm, Bored and, uh, uh, but generally there was a sense of uh, peace and uh, grace. Uh, so I really wanted that more, and I knew I wasn't, you know, uh, taught to practice or do any kind of meditation. So if I learned the meditation or practice, it would be even better. So then I actually pursued it uh, with receiving some more teachings, and then. Uh, when I first went into retreat, it was really a great um, uh, feeling of, uh, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I wanted to do all the rest of my life, kind of a feeling. Of course, I didn't stay there all the time, but uh, there was a sense of real connection. But that's So that second retreat, which started, I believe, you said at age 13. Somewhere around age 13. How long were you on retreat for? That time then, I was in retreat for about uh, three months uh, or maybe close to four months. And uh, I can see from my uh, window, uh, looking up at the mountains, you know, there are some small uh, villages uh, up in the mountains, you know, from my window. And I was even wanting to go further more into the mountains and, you know, meditate up uh, in the mountains. And uh, there was a sense of real a feeling of uh, uh, deep uh, joy to pursue this as a sort of lifelong uh, path. And wanting to kind of uh, truly make it this uh, work for myself, and uh, I'm glad that I found those inspirations then. And then since then, I've been uh, meditating uh, off and on. But then, uh, seriously, uh, from uh, the age of I think maybe twenties. So in your twenties, you, you it was in your twenties that you started meditating seriously. You seriously, said? yes. When I actually. I was a monk uh, for uh, those uh, early years, for about uh, 10, maybe 11 uh, years. And then um, then I got disrobed, and then uh, I got married. And, you know, uh, when I first disrobed, there was kind of a 
very exciting uh, time, and there was a lot of kind of uh, possibilities and a lot of uh, uh, things to explore, and that's why I disrobed uh, and I went into the kind of a world. But then after a while, again, similarly, there was kind of a you know void and a, a big life change, and there was a kind of a hit of a uh, depression and a deep kind of like you know feeling of like lost. So then from there, then I kind of seriously sort of uh, uh, pursued uh, uh, meditation practice. I went up into a mountain and I stayed up there for about a year and pursuing kind of a, a meditation. Uh, in How'd your wife feel about that? No, that time actually we haven't met. This is just right, uh, you know, before I met. Uh, I see. After disrobing, but before you met your wife. Before yeah. I met my wife. So then from there, then of course, you know, we got married and then, uh, you know, we had a child Then we moved here. Then I was asked to teach in Naropa uh, Institute or Naropa University uh, in the uh, graduate uh, programs. So then I was teaching. So then I, you know, pursued it uh, seriously, you know, just as uh, I was responsible to teach uh, to others. You described your father as... Rinpoche. Uh, a reincarnation. Reincarnation, yes. Of a, a, and, but you have the title as well. Yes. I was also recognized at the age of, uh, I think, 10. Uh, I was recognized as a reincarnate of a friend of my father's who actually passed away just right before he left Tibet. And uh, so, um, so then I was enthroned into my father's monastery in, uh, in uh, India. And then I grew up there, and uh, yeah, so since then I have this title of uh, Tulku's. Tulku. Tulku. T-U-L-K-U, Tulku, yeah. which is the uh, the wor- the title, another word for a reincarnated yes. lama. Yeah, Tulku generally means a reincarnated lamas, and the Rinpoche means just, just an honorific name for uh, uh, Tulku's, uh, just meaning precious one or something like that. So how, how do you talk about reincarnation to a skeptical Western person like me? Because I'm, I consider myself to be a Buddhist, mm. but I've seen no evidence for reincarnation. So how, how, how am I supposed to gr- grapple with this? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, uh, there's no, not uh, uh, found an evidence of reincarnation, but there's also mm, not, not found an no evidence of uh, reincarnations as well, too. Um, you mean so there's no evidence against it? No evidence against it. So it's a kind of a belief of what you um, uh, take on as a mind. You know, If you take on a mind as a consciousness that is like a momentary, uh, and it is a stream of momentarily rising uh, and uh, dissolving mm, uh, and that you know continue noon uh, of the moments mm, till the end uh, uh, then when the body goes into the distractions uh, the separation between the body and the mind uh, happens but the mind continues uh, as into the kind of uh, uh, intermediate state, mm. and uh, so there's no reasons for or continuation of the uh, 
moment, uh, after the last moment of this life uh, um, ends and the next one to arise. So, <clears throat> I mean, even as a, a body in the atomic level, uh, the continuations of the atom continues. It doesn't just evaporate and becomes uh, non-existent. It continues. So it's like that the stream of the consciousness also continues. And then when it continues in the, um, in, into the kind of intermediate state, it is not going to have this body, but it's going to have something similar to this body, like what we have in the dream. You know, we have uh, something similar to this body in the dream that the consciousness sort of uh, uh, is attached to or consciousness sort of like perceives and uh, carries on. Something like that in the bardo or the intermediate state, uh, you continue for uh, maximum up to 49 days. Uh, And in the 49 days, then whatever the sort of like karma or whatever the sort of next birth is to be, then you have a sort of uh, visions of that. And there's a lot of beings who are searching for birth. So then you take a birth. And in the birth, there's the kind of... uh, the birth of the womb, and then there's the birth from the eggs, then there's the moisture birth, and then there's the birth of sort of like a spontaneously popping up into a realm. So there's a different types of birth. So the life then in that way circles. That's kind of the belief. But of course, you know, in order for anyone to really truly take this seriously and believe, there has to be some kind of a faith in the kind of, uh, you know, not just in the evidence, but there has to be some kind of a connection and a faith in the uh, in the kind of spiritual path in the Dharma, and as well as also to sort of like see this as a long sort of like a, a term and the benefit of the long term, uh, not just immediately what it does for you, but something that it will help you in the long run to evolve yourself and evolve your consciousness into a sort of higher state and higher and higher and much more of an enlightened state. But in in the view of the Tibetan tradition. Would I be considered a bad Buddhist with insufficient faith? Uh, no, I think uh, I don't think there is a bad Buddhist. I think it's just like a, you know, uh, whether it is through the intellect uh, that you get to have in a sort of faith, or whether over the time your connection grows into the uh, spiritual path, uh, that you are then faith kind of grows. Um, or, you know, you just have the faith. I think, it, you know, people come different ways and it's not really like you should have and you must have or anything like that. It's just more like uh, where you are and uh, see what actually uh, to have the faith in the rebirth and the kind of like a, a bigger vision of oneself evolving over the time. How does that sort of like uh, support you? and your spiritual path, and how does that support your kind of like overall uh, sort of like, uh, you know, psychological and emotional well-being, you know, to have some kind of like hope for the uh, future rather than just everything extinct, being extinct or finished or uh, everything sort of going to a blank uh, here. Um, So in my view, in just my personal experience as well as People who, you know, I've talked to, there seems like a, just with a positive kind of like a hope, uh, there's a much less fear and much less sort of like attachments to this 
Because however we believe, you know, there isn't or there, uh, there isn't our next life or life after this. You know, we're going to be attached to this body, and it seems like the attachment to this body or this life becomes a little bit more sort of solidified. There's nothing to hope for in the future, or nothing to kind of like uh, vision uh, to go after this life. So with the with the with the rebirth and the, with the kind of idea of the rebirth, there's a sense of like a continuation or something to look forward and something to kind of you know uh, what you do here uh, to reap a fruit in the next life. And then particularly with the sort of a consciousness, like if. You explore the consciousness essence as you have meditated, you would know this. There comes a time where actually, you know, you are in a kind of a state where actually you're not fabricating, but you are present. And then there's a really a wakefulness, you know, and that present and the wakefulness uh, has no sort of like a, a rising or dwelling or ceasing. So that essence, you know, is going to be very difficult to be annihilated or destroyed or what is there to be even in the first place destroyed. You know, like a, with the with the physical thing, there's something to be destroyed, but with that, there's nothing to be destroyed. So you're talking now about one of the great mysteries, in my view, kind of the great mystery of consciousness. Yes. Ooh, how, are, how are the lights on in here yeah. in my head but not even in my we don't even know if the consciousness is in the head it could be in your knee um uh so and and in meditation for a a, a low-level meditator such as myself even people like me you can get a sense of who who is who's the one knowing all of this who's who's feeling the breath who's hearing sounds and all of this stuff and so you're saying that that consciousness which is this mysterious yes Yes. Way. Yes. Uh, you can't imagine it being destroyed. It's destroyed. Yeah. That you know, like there's a two types of consciousness. There's a types of consciousness that rises and falls, and that is sort of you know aware of objects. And then there's a consciousness that is not really necessarily aware of an object, and that also doesn't rise and fall. And it's all omniscient and present, and it's there, you know, unfabricated. And you feel that, and you experience that. And in there, there's no really sort of duality, like a me or them or I or uh, he or she, you know. And that, you know, is the source of all other consciousness that evolves, you know. Without that, there's no really any other consciousness of uh, like a thought process or the emotions or the eye consciousness or the sensory consciousness, any of the consciousness could not have a base to arise. But because of that, uh, primordial consciousness is being there, then all the other consciousness, you know, gets sort of, uh, uh, has the base to uh, rise and fall, you know. So, of course, other consciousness are going to be impermanent and they are going to be shaped and conditioned by the uh, conditions, uh, like uh, organs and objects, but the primordial consciousness is not shaped in primordial condition. consciousness. Primordial right. consciousness. So we may have temporary hearing, temporary seeing, temporary yes. tasting. Those are all the temporary yeah. arisings of consciousness. But they all play out against what you're calling primordial consciousness, yes. which is this yeah. mysterious knowing that's happening yeah, in that, the background. Exactly, exactly. And that, 
since that's there, then since that sort of like a, is a, uh, you know, unchangingly continues, so then all of the other consciousness and the life-based consciousness, you know, is going to be also there with the sort of uh, different conditions. Of course, it's not going to be the same conditions as here. Like in the dreams, we don't have the same conditions as what we have in the awakened. But there is a conditions to see and hear, things like that. So there is going to be that kind of a, uh, continuations of, uh, uh, you know, uh, life and the consciousness that actually experiences the life in the world. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Well, let me ask you one last obnoxious question about oh, no. um, uh, reincarnation before we get back to your yeah. story. Uh, don't you think it's convenient that the, your your dad's buddy passes away and it turns out that his son <laughs> is the guy who's the reincarnate? Well, I think if there's some advantage that I could actually uh, have, then it most probably uh, could be uh, you know, perceived that way. Since being a reincarnated, there's a lot of uh, uh, shouldering of uh, responsibilities and uh, work, uh, and also a lot of uh, you know sense of kind of um, duty to sort of serve. Um, I think uh, it's maybe perhaps uh, you know even if it is you know it is to sort of really help the uh, uh, the community and it's to help the culture and it's to help the. Uh, you know, the continuation of the Dharma uh, in the world. So I take it uh, with a sort of sense of uh, uh, honor. And uh, not I feel like I'm a reincarnate. You know, no one most probably feels that way. But there's a sense of honor that we feel being kind of entrusted this uh, uh, responsibility with the name. Because it takes on us. It's, I, I was indicating that, you know, I was in my role as a, a skeptical journalist. I was... Uh, badgering you about whether this was some sort of spiritual nepotism, but you're basically saying that, well, this is actually an important ceremonial role in the community, and asking somebody to take yeah. on the role of a tilku yeah. is is, well, uh, is look, a responsibility. Yeah, look at this way. Like a, we, as, a, as a Tibetan, uh, we lost our country, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, we had to exile. And, uh, you know, we landed in India uh, with really nothing. Uh, in 1959 uh, uh, and the early 60s, you know, we were just really in a very, very bad condition. Now the Tibetan community in India 
is uh, thriving and it's doing well. Of course, still we have a lot of issues and a lot of things to be uh, done to prog- make progress in the society and the community and the culture and the tradition. But we have been able to preserve uh, the, the culture and the religion and the uh, dharma and the path and the practice of meditation and so as also all of the kind of uh, the language and so on and so forth. It has to be done by somebody. It has to be done in a system. One of the uh, ways to do that was the, uh, you know, the kind of interesting, uh, recognizing tukus and interesting responsibilities to tukus to kind of like do that. And there are, of course, good tukus and there are bad tukus. Mm. But most of the tukus really have tried their best. You know, of course, we are all human beings. We have failures. But most of the tukus have done, and because of the works of the, not just only tukus, but the Tibetans and the Tibetans in this way, carrying forward into the kind of like a new world, so to speak, uh, I think we have uh, really managed to sort of like uh, really not completely lose our tradition and culture and the dharma and the way of life, and so as also the kind of uh, all of our sort of like a belief systems, you know. I think in that way, there is some real uh, great value. Well, you've really gone far afield with the teachings. I mean, you've taken it far and wide. Uh, so t- tell me about why you came to the United States and what what uh, what a big change, because you were you were in northern India? Yes. Uh, I was Dharamsala? In, yeah, nearby Dharamsala, in, uh, nearby Dharamsala, a place called Bir, where there's a Tibetan refugee community, and I was uh, born and grew up there. So, you know, that's where... I was very close, about two hours from Dharamsala. Um, then I came to America because, you know, I was I got married to my wife and then uh, we had a son and then I had to kind of uh, make a living and, you know, she was from here. So I was, well, she was American. She's American, yeah. So then uh, her parents were living in Los Angeles. So they invited us to uh, come and stay with them. So we came and stayed with them. And then, of course, you know, uh, they wanted to, you know, move to Santa Fe, and then uh, we had to uh, also move uh, to uh, somewhere. So then, at that time, I was offered a job in Rupa to teach uh, Buddhism, and uh, then I moved to Boulder. And then there, you know, some of the, my initial first students came and asked to be a student, and then we formed a small sangha, and then we started from there, very fresh and just organically. It wasn't like a plan. It was just through the kind of like events of uh, life that brought me here and made me into sort of uh, who I am. So so there are a million other questions that I can ask about your life, and we'll, we'll get back to it. But let, let's talk a little bit. About you, you've written a number of books, and you've got a new one. Yeah. Uh, the paperback is, I think by the time we record this, we'll probably just have, uh, by the time we release this, we'll, the paperback will be newly released. It's called Training in Tenderness. Training and tenderness, yes. Buddhist teachings on, so how do I pronounce that? Sewa. Sewa, yeah. the radical openness of heart that can change the world. Um, let's let's talk this through. So uh, what do you mean when you say tenderness? Tenderness. Like, for example, I was just thinking last night how to sort of uh, communicate this. Recently, I was in uh, uh, India, in, uh, in Varanasi. I was uh, in the Ganges. Uh, and then in the evening, there's uh, lots of people, like thousands of people, come to sort of uh, witness this uh, sort of uh, uh, ceremony that they do every evening. So 
I was coming back, the thousands of people are coming back. And then, you know, I was uh, uh, sitting uh, uh, next to a shop, and then there's a little infant baby, you know, just size of like a maybe uh, melon, you know, <laughs> size of melon, maybe a five pound, on the, uh, on the ground while all these people, you know, are leaving. And when everybody sees that, there's a sort of like a, once a heart kind of leaping out, you know. Everybody stops and everybody sort of like, you know, feels this sort of like tenderness, you know. Why? Because we all have this, you know, tenderness, you know. When we see another life or another life which seems so kind of like, you know, uh, uh, vulnerable and which needs uh, uh, the conditions of happiness and which lacks the sort of like uh, conditions of the happiness and which seems like in a, such a kind of like a, a dry situation and uh, painful situation, you know. Of course, the conceptual mind is a one thing, but the kind of a heart leaping out from your chest and then feeling something that at that moment, that is the tsewa, you know, and we all have that. Of course, we can shut it down and we can sort of like, hey, you know, um, ignore it and do a lot uh, with it. But I think we all have that. And this kind of like a feeling of just towards all living beings or particularly towards, you know, uh, other human beings, uh, if we can sort of, instead of like a contracting our heart, if we can keep our heart open and then let that sort of a tender feeling, you know, warm, tender feeling, arise, you know, uh, on the basis of acknowledging that they are living beings just as myself and they are going through the same things as, you know, uh, hopes for the happiness and joy and conditions of the happiness to be um, plentiful or whatever uh, uh, is needed to be in their lives just as I'm kind of like hoping that and I'm wishing that I have that needs, you know. And then sort of really making the uh, wish, not exclusively for yourself, but wish for all of the humanity to sort of, you know, get that happiness and get that uh, kind of a joy and the conditions, you know. That sort of like it makes your, you know, uh, heart uh, open and and keeps your heart kind of like a warm end. And then also it starts to sort of like, you know, uh, make an... Uh, a connection with the others, and then others starts to sort of like have a response with uh, a response to that, and then there's a sense of real kind of a bond that develops, you know. So that's that's ever in essence. Do you not think there are people who are psychopaths or sociopaths or borderline personalities who are actually incapable of tsewa or? Or even people who are the victims of external circumstances that hardened them so much, you know, childhood abuse or, I don't know, that that put them in a situation where their tsewa is hard to access, if not um, infinitesimally small? I think, uh, you know, definitely there are sociopaths and there are, you know, people who are disturbed and uh, people who have really hardened, you know. But, you know... Seva is not, uh, you know, based on uh, object uh, of uh, uh, just only uh, uh, towards others. Seva is also based on uh, 
object of yourself, you know, object of yourself. Uh, so, you know, even though they may have not, uh, you know, seva for others or explicitly expressed that seva for others, there is that kind of tenderness towards yourself and tenderness towards care for your own. Uh, so, if, you know, there is an tenderness for yourself and care for yourself, then we are talking about, uh, we are talking about uh, not whether somebody has the potential of seva or not. We are talking about the conditions, you know, conditions. Conditions being sort of uh, uh, in those people, uh, uh, they are lacking uh, to express that seva towards others, you know. Now if they get to see the sort of a meaning and the reasons and the value and the sort of a sense of like how this can actually sort of help them to increase, to express that seva towards not just for themselves but to others and expressing the seva towards others, especially to whom they are related, whom they are close, whom, who are in their environment, how it's a win-win situation, then I think, you know, that sort of wisdom can guide them to increase the seva and open the heart. So I really feel like a potential of the seva is in everyone. So, but given that we live in a world where there are many people who have trouble accessing their innate capacity for kindness generosity, tenderness, whatever word you want to use. Uh, does that put those of us who are interested in developing our, our capacities in this area at some risk? In other words, if the, the more – I hear this a lot. People say to me the more – I'm actually working on a book about kindness right now. And, and the, the rap on the, 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 the common critique of, of kindness is, well, if I – the more kind I get, the more I'm going to get pushed around by jerks. No, it's actually not about, you know, it's not about uh, uh, feeling obliged to feel tseva and feeling obliged to sort of uh, be kind uh, because of the tseva. Also, go out of your realm and out of your boundaries to, you know, jeopardize yourself. You know, it has to accompany with the intelligence and the critical thinking as well as how this really is going to sort of play out and how this is going to sort of like being helpful to oneself and others and uh, how, you know, uh, doing something just based on kind of uh, this being good and therefore it should be sort of uh, unlimited uh, and uh, therefore you should sort of go all the way to kind of force yourself. That's, a, you know, a wrong uh, uh, view and that's not an sort of like, a, you know, gradual path. There has to be a gradual of accompanying your sort of a opening of heart and that seva increasing with your intelligence and with your sort of a critical thinking and with the sense of uh, knowing what uh, works and what doesn't work. So it, it, it has to be married with the intelligence, you know, the emotion of the opening of heart, uh, emotion of flowing of seva, emotion of uh, kindness uh, being felt and, uh, uh, intended to feel more for others uh, has to also be, you know, guided with their wisdom. So the marriage of, uh, uh, you know, in critical intelligence with the, uh, you know, uh, emotions uh, together, then I don't see, you know, even when you cannot do something and when you see, you know, doing something uh, that will turn out being uh, not helpful, you know, there has to be also you know, a sense of a kind of a, uh, not, a, you know, mm, 
turning against the tsewa, but uh, sort of like uh, knowing one's own limit and stopping where it needs to be stopped and uh, also not sort of like uh, expressing one's seva with a sort of uh, kindness that is sort of uh, going to turn into a sour and uh, have a bad sort of uh, comeback. So there's an expression I like from, uh, I believe uh, this expression exists in the Tibetan uh, tradition of idiot compassion. Idiot compassion, yeah. It could, you know, turn into idiot compassion. You know, if one doesn't use one's sort of uh, critical intelligence alone with the sort of intelligence of the emotions. So how do we go about developing this? So you make the case that uh, that this tenderness is innate in all of us and that the smart ones will see, or the wise people will see, actually, it's the source of happiness that you can, yeah. if you develop. And the, the Dalai Lama talks about this, too. He calls, talks about wise selfishness. The wise, selfish person realizes that compassion, kindness, generosity, these are actually what makes a good life. And you will develop this concern for others because it redounds to your benefit moment to moment where life is lived. Mm. Um, so how do, we, how do we develop this capacity in your view? Well, I think, uh, uh, first of all, it's a source of happiness, but it is a state of happiness in itself. Mm-hmm. That is also very important to know. So I think, uh, first of all, I think there has to be an interest. You know, there has to be a sort of a intention to want to have a tseva, you know. There has to be, with anything, uh, some intention and there has to be some interest uh, so that it's not like a force onto you or anything like that, you know. Uh, now, uh, generally speaking, you know, I think the uh, sense of like a, if anyone uh, to you is a warm, open, and non-threatening, but really there to kind of like, a, you know, connect with you, we all appreciate that. So what you appreciate from others, you have to sort of, you know, know that others appreciate that. So with that base, then you want to have some kind of an interest or some kind of a connection to sort of like develop yourself in that way. So then the way to do it is really sort of uh, is, you know, basically, you know, coming in touch with your own mind, you know, kind of observing where your state of mind is and then acknowledging that there is a lot of, you know, uh, aspirations in your mind, you know, making a uh, connection with your mind, taking the time to realize that there's a lot of aspirations in your mind and that there's a lot of, you know, hopes in your mind and there's a lot of kind of a um, sense of a drive to meet the conditions uh and have the conditions to fulfill uh, this uh, kind of an aspirations or this kind of hopes in your mind, getting in touch with all of those things about yourself first is the foremost important, you know, uh, coming to know yourself rather than sort of like automatically working uh, uh, and just uh, always sort of like uh, in uh, sort of a uh, uh, rush and always uh, focus outwardly and kind of like going, going, going there has to be a turning your mind inwardly to observe one's state. So when you see that, and then there's also a lot of, you know, fears and there's a lot of, you know, anxieties and there's a lot of a sense of, you know, kind of a vulnerabilities inside of you. So then once you get in touch with that, then knowing, you know, look at anyone in this world, you know, who doesn't have that? Everyone has that, just like you. Outside, we may look different, we may act different, we may are in a different places, and we may have seemingly a different conditions. 
but inside everyone is identical you know and to be able to see that in a real way that there's no really a differences between oneself and others all these differences is just a facade differences that in essence there's no differences you know as who we are as a living being and getting to when you get to that place with some kind of conviction then it's easier to sort of develop that tenderness towards others you know openness towards others warm feeling towards others as you have that and there's nothing you lose you actually you know including others makes you observe grow and and the happiness grow and so it's also source of happiness grow you know in there when you realize if you actually continuously sort of hold on to the self and just the aspiration of the self and the hopes of the self and the vulnerability of the self and trying to kind of like put yourself in a box do you see how it's painful it actually creates some kind of like a more anxiety the black hole of self obsession black hole of self obsession so in that way then you know uh, trying to kind of uh, increase that there are for all living beings and then as an ambay to sustain yourself in that uh, state of the seva or the openness and then the uh, way to connect with them is then making a you know aspirations on behalf of others you don't know all the aspirations of others but it is an aspiration of happiness and joy and conditions of happiness and joy to be increased in their life so making a you know prayers in that direction sort of like uh, sustains you in that and then doing that consciously so that you are sort of like in touch with yourself in your own internal life and then sort of like a acknowledging and then uh making that into an ground for one's connection with others and increasing the uh openness and the warm feelings and you know uh warm mm, uh, thoughts and prayers uh being offered on behalf of others kind of like you know make sure in that 5 10 minutes of a time buoyance you know from a makes you come out of your own sub you know locked in sub absorption a lot of the times and anxiety and then it makes you buoyant so you're, that you're talking about a 5 10 minute practice a formal meditation yeah, practice formal meditation or, or just getting in touch with yourself and uh, kind of in a formal meditation practice you know that would be i think uh, very suggestible you use the term prayer prayers like you know may all sentient beings be happy and have the cause and conditions of happiness something like that being sort of like a chanted you know in your head over and over and the, doing that sort of like sustains you in that open state of mind rather than sort of drift away back into the sort gotcha. of so 5 to 10 minutes you can put yourself in a reasonably quiet space or put some headphones on and and actually say to yourself the words may all sentient beings yeah have the what was the what was happiness and the cause and conditions of happiness may all sentient beings or may all living beings have uh you know happiness and the cause and conditions of happiness you know and just repeating that to yourself yeah. actually you you're building the muscle yeah of sewa tenderness that's right. compassion that's right friendliness there are lots of words for this it's interesting you know i feel like there are but the first i think that Sorry. go ahead i think what i wanted to say is getting in touch with yourself where you are what's your internal life is and what's going on with your own self rather than sort of like being in this automatic mode and going 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 you know trying to achieve 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 but what you are trying to achieve why you are trying to achieve what is the kind of uh, emotions behind what is the kind of reasons behind what are you feeling you know what are your take ons 
not being kind of examined. It's just sort of like, a, you know, just being driven, you know, is a really uh, a way to kind of, uh, first that has to be kind of a, uh, uh, address and turn one's mind uh, inwardly to kind of get in touch with as it. part of the formal practice or as something you do just, just as a just in the park you know just just in the quiet space and just when you are falling asleep and when you are you know not able to fall asleep and you have some space of time to kind of think you know and uh, reflect you know and the know. reflection again is sort of what what is. Who, what do I want? Who am I? Where yeah, am I going? Who am I? Where, where am I going? Why am I going there? What do I aspire? You know, why do I aspire that? You know, what do I feel? You know, if I'm so fixed on something, why am I fixated on this? You know, this this kind of questions asking to yourself, and then sort of not having an immediate answer, smart answer, but just really genuinely discovering you know where you are and what your intelligence tells you. I always feel like if you follow this kind of self-inquiry to its logical extent, if you ask yourself, what do I really want? Mm-hmm. You, the initial answers may be very quite worldly. Yeah. Uh, if I was doing it for myself, I want my company to succeed. I want to get a more as many promotions as I possibly can get at ABC News. I want my books to sell a lot. Okay, but the, what does that really mean at the level of the mind? Yes, that's uh, right. And so you ultimately get down to just positive mental states. Yeah. That's what yeah, we want. That's right. And um, and if and you the, could get the positive mental state from sort of really just kind of like a make, opening up your heart and uh, feeling the seva and the connection towards the humanity and then making a sort of aspirations on behalf of the humanity, then all of those could be bypassed. I mean, though uh, they have some values and they can actually offer a lot to you, but you don't feel so desperate. For the worldly things. Just like when you were 10 years old, stuck on that meditation retreat and you wanted to be playing with your buddies and you got out there and you started doing, you realized, okay, it's not as good as I thought it was going to be. There are roots that frustratingly for somebody who's as kind of sarcastic and uh, skeptical and Western as I am, often they're described with words that can be a little triggering for anti-sentimentalists such as myself. So the roots to happiness that actually are a little bit more sustainable and more successful usually often are described with words like tenderness, kindness, generosity, words that, you know, somebody who grows up in in this culture – we hear them in after-school specials and uh, lectures from our yes, parents. and especially, you know, I mean, uh, if you are a householder, if you have a family and you have, a, you know, uh, uh, offsprings, you know, you're doing a lot of this, you know, just not for yourself if, mm-hmm. you know, you ask people. You're doing this for your family, you know. You're doing this for the, you know, happiness of the family and for the people who you love, you know. But there's other ways to sort of love them, other ways to care for them, other ways to sort of connect with them, other ways to contribute to their life and happiness, you know, that you could share in the uh, in the moment rather than sort of like uh, uh, ignoring the moment, ignoring the situation, ignoring the kind of like a possibility of what is within in your range and then trying to sort of like, a, you know, fixate it on something else outside, you know. That is really the kind of the downfall of the modernizations, you know. I have the sense that just as some of us are innately better at basketball, some of us are innately better at kindness and compassion. That so, for example, um, my I have a three year old. Mm-hmm. He's got he has a, this amazing nanny mm-hmm. who everybody tells us all the time. But people in our apartment building will stop us in the elevator. 
just when it's my wife and I alone, people will say, you know, I, I, I watch your nanny sometimes. She's so great. She just loves your kids so much. And the other children in my son's class run to sit in his nanny's lap. And I asked her once, why, why do they do that? And she said, well, they know where their love is. And I look at her and I think she's just an amazing human. Yeah. Uh, no other kids aren't rushing to sit in my lap. Um, the, I'm not saying I'm, you know, Pol Pot or the mass murderer or something like that, but I mean, I don't ooze the kind of uh, compassion and caring and kindness that she does. Do, do you agree that there are, you know, uh, I'm seriously interested in developing my, my, my capacity for Tsewa, but don't you think we come, we all approach this endeavor at different levels? There's a lot of conditions that we are actually born with, you know, and that shapes us and particularly how we grew up and what kind of a family we grew up with, how much of a warmth and openness and a kind of tenderness there is. You know, it's sort of like, a, you know, uh, gives us a model how to be. And in that way, I think, you know, we maybe come out uh, seemingly different. But I think if somebody is interested, you know, somebody who's, you know, initially you know, without the sort of like uh, interest and without that training or without the kind of, uh, uh, you know, really kind of uh, sitting with one's own kind of uh, mind, uh, it could be very angry and very sort of short-tempered and very kind of like a fast reactor, you know, to sort of like a, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, repel anybody who comes close. But slowly, slowly in training in the mind and training in this kind of like a openness and uh, tenderness and, and, you know, kind of being there, you know, rather than sort of doing something, being there as in a no threat, no harm, you know, right? Being there, open, right? And then whatever ways that you could actually, in a way, be on help, uh, you know, being sort of available or just willing to uh, stretch yourself, that, I think, can really be developed, that can be developed, and that changes your relation. A relationship is not permanent at all in that way, you know. And uh, so I think somebody can really, from uh, not like that, get there, you know, because there is that sort of like interest and there is that sort of uh, intention and there is that sort of like a progress, swiftly kind of a transforming yourself, you know, inside. Of course, one might retract with the, some fears or some kind of... Uh, anxieties and some you know, times, you know, feeling of, uh, you know, uh, maybe perhaps, you know, uh, a distrust of oneself or what one is doing. But then, you know, over the time as you also work with them and get through them, then I think, you know, you could really sort of have a uh, change of, you know, a change of uh, uh, your relations with the world and others, I really do believe. I mean, to what extent, but to some extent, that's for sure. Well, I'm glad you talked about um, you, you talked about the, the potential we all have, even if we're embarked in this training to regress. Yeah. You know, there are. I, we should. I should just say for the clarification of listeners, there are many, many training techniques within the Buddhism's within the various schools of Buddhism, and also many of these techniques have also been secularized and and, uh, and can be taught to anybody. Uh, for tra- for training compassion, and you're from the Tibetan school. There are many techniques. Aside from just repeating the the phrase that we uttered before about may all sentient beings have happiness and the sources of happiness, there are lots of ways to train in compassion. And I'm I'm from the Theravada school. We have our own ways of doing it, and and again, there are secular ways to do it as well. Um, 
That being said, I, I wonder, I wonder how convinced you are that it really works. Because, for example, I look at what's happening in Burma right now. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this, these are this, these are That's Buddhist it. monks who are not from your part of Buddhism, but there are Buddhist monks, Theravada Buddhist monks, and so not Tibetan Buddhist monks um, in Burma who are involved in what is, by many descriptions. Uh, a genocide of yes. Muslims uh, in 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 Burma, now known as Myanmar. So I look at that and I'm saying, right, these are Buddhist monks. These are people who I guess have done some meditation, some training. Uh, where's their sewa right now? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what makes the training, first of all, I think, work is uh, uh, based on the mind, mind being uh, reflective, you know, and uh, uh, mind have mind uh, having this sort of a quality of uh, 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 being reflective. Now, if you actually get in touch with your own mind and uh, get in touch with your own feelings and get in touch with your own aspirations and get in touch with your own kind of uh, uh, happiness and uh, what sort of like makes you happiness uh, happy and what sort of contributes your life to sort of uh, uh, be happier and uh, have a sort of uh, more kind of a well-being from inside, you know, it's going to be, you know, not contracting your heart, not within an anger, not within a grudge, not within a sense of really kind of a wanting to kind of eliminate what is obstacle, so to speak, outside, for you, it is going to be with a more sort of like open heart, more uh, sort of tender uh, feelings and kind thoughts and compassionate thoughts and more tolerance and more sense of like a really willing to kind of like uh, extend yourself uh, in your uh, limit to others. That's just given fact, right? Given fact. And the mind coming to realizations of those, you know, ultimately have to transform you, you know. Not because you're outwardly being a a Buddhist or you're outwardly looking like you are a meditator or outwardly you are sort of, uh, you know, uh, in kind of a position to, uh, you know, hmm, uh, teach or anything like that. It has to be that mind coming to sort of a self-realizations, you know. And in this way, then I really do feel, you know, I mean, we all get uh, passionate and we all get sort of like a caught up in our own sort of like a beliefs and we all get into sort of our own kind of sense of like a, a self-protectiveness and uh, and thinking that, you know, uh, what we are doing is sort of, we are doing it for the uh, reasons we are doing it, and those reasons are valid. You know, so what's happening in, the, I think, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Burma, Myanmar, uh, right now, it's a totally against the Buddhism, you know, in that way, you know. Uh, but most probably, you know, in this way, I think, you know, uh, they're doing it, and I think what they're doing is not really sort of reflection of the, uh, inside meditation, you know, it's not a reflection of uh, progressive uh, teachings of the Buddhas uh, to sort of like a, you know know yourself and know you are better 
know your better qualities and you know what is the sort of like a source of genuine kind of like a happiness or enlightenment you know this is some you know bizarre thing so what about you you you're you you're married marriage is um uh can be can be tricky very challenging. yeah you say that again very challenging yes it can be challenging and you have a, ch- a son, son yeah. uh, he's how old is he now he's a 30 he's, okay yeah. so he's not in diapers uh, i hope not mm. um uh, so, but but you've been through the diaper stage. You've been through adolescence. So, how did you have moments that where your your capacity for tsewa were, were put to the was put to the test? Oh yeah, always. I mean, you had say capacity uh, to the capacity of the tsewa put to the test is an everyday challenge, mm. right? It's not like a, you know you achieve a state and then you stay there and it doesn't get you know at all uh, uh, shaken. But it's your sort of like emphasis is a what really is meaningful to you, what is important to you, what sort of like a, is something that you could hold on to kind of like in the kind of a good times and bad times, you know, in the both times, you know. And even you are put into a test and challenge and sometimes, you know, you just as we are all humans and just as we all have our own self uh, uh and uh, self-protection and then also sort of we have a tendency to sort of project uh, threat and then we have aggression towards that and then we get sort of like all worked up in the confusions and then we lose our balance. That happens a lot. But, you know, there's a way to come back to the way you want to be, you know, and then working through those emotions. And even though some of those things have become sort of like a little bit out of a hand and sort of have created a little bit of chaos in your life. You know, there's also, you know, like a regrets, remorse, and then, you know, you know, feeling kind of apologetic and then confessing. All of this is a part of an incre- uh, increasing of the seva and, you know, uh, it is sort of like, a, you know, to sort of... Uh, uh, help the seva to not be lost in the ultimate uh, level or in the uh, in the kind of uh, um, not to sort of uh, have that kind of somehow become not important to you. You've done a great job with this interview. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? No, you asked wonderful questions. Thank you so much for all those questions. I hope that the seva, you know, I really my hope and intention and aspiration and prayers is that it sort of really uh, warms up all the household in the uh, United States as well as also in the world and everywhere, you know, in the, uh, in the uh, way it reaches so that there's a real much more palpable of uh, happiness and joy in, you know, hands uh, without sort of like having to go into the sort of uh, uh, material world uh, within some kind of, like, you know, uh, of course, uh, improvement needs to be there, but what's already available in their lives. I want to give you a chance before we go to tell people if they want to learn more about you, uh, work, how can they find that information? Uh, I think uh, my name is Diga Kongtul Rinpoche, and uh, we have an uh, organization that is named after my teacher, Mangala Shiributi, 
And uh, I think is there a we website? Have, Do you know the website off the? There is the a website, uh, but I don't know how to kind of tell you the <laughs> website. <laughs> we'll put it. In uh-huh. the, we'll put it in the show notes, folks. Um, and I also want to point out that you've written a bunch of books. So you all, you your your newest book is Training and Tenderness, but you also wrote a book called It's uh, It's Up to You: The Practice of Self Reflection on the Buddhist Path. Light comes through Buddhist teachings on awakening to our natural intelligence and uncommon happiness: the path of the compassionate warrior. Oh, also, The Intelligent Heart, A Guide to the Compassionate Life. So you're prolific. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to spend this time with you, Dan, and uh, really please carry on your outreach, you know, to the larger world as you are, you know, put in this uh, position with uh, such a good uh, fortune of your karma to really do some good work, and I really appreciate all your work that you have done already. Thank you. Next time I see you, I will be a shining beacon of sewa. Wonderful. I wonderful. promise. You already, I can see you have a lot of Sewa <laughs> in you. Yeah. Hey, don't, don't, don't trust your first impression. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Really thank appreciate you. it. Really thank fun. you very much. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.